Well, we've certainly read Psalm 117 enough times this morning. I hope you feel like you've got a sense for what's going on there. Um, I feel like each week that I've preached on the Psalms, we've had a massive chunk of Bible, a bit of an overload. Um, I hope that's been all right. I've been trying it out just to sort of really saturate us with, um, with God's Word, even to the point where it feels overwhelming so that we get a sense for um, what's, what the feeling of it is, be- is behind it. Especially when we're looking at the Psalms, we're not just looking at the words that are there, but what's the sense that is within it that is being communicated to us. And this Psalm is, is no different. So I hope it's been helpful and I hope it will be helpful today as well. So let's get into Psalm 117. On April 11, 2012, the superhero movie The Avengers debuted at Hollywood's El Captain Theatre. It was released theatrically worldwide a month later and garnered numerous critical awards and nominations, surprisingly for a superhero movie, which is generally considered to be trash (laughs) cinema. Surprisingly, the critics loved it, all of them. It was a massive hit with the public too. It took $39 million in its opening weekend. That's the third highest ever. It was the quickest film to gross a billion dollars ever and it it grossed $1.51 billion worldwide, which again is the third highest. It was, as all superhero movies are, stupid and over the top, but also a really good film. Most people loved it, talked about it, recommended it, raved it, sang its praises. Joss Whedon, the director, also made another film that year, not so widely publicised. It was a modern version of William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. It was black and white, it was low-key, it was filmed at his own house over 12 days with actors that he knew, and they weren't particularly well-known. Only one cinema in Manchester showed it, and it only showed it for six days. It was like the polar opposite of the Avengers. I don't know what the takings were, but it wasn't anywhere near as high. Hardly anybody heard of it. There was no fanfare, and there were definitely no explosions. And yet it was the best film that I saw all year. Possibly my favourite film ever. To the point that when I got home, I couldn't stop talking to the babysitters about it, seven of them I can tell you. They wanted to go home, and I kept them there for another 15 minutes talking about it, how great it was. I rang my mum, and I told her about how great this film was, and she should watch it. I then went and told all my work colleagues and told them on Facebook as well. I told Mike Tyndall that I was going to buy it and like, lend it to him, and I did. I went and bought it that night and lent it to him. And, well, I want to. So good did I think the film was. I wanted to share it with everybody that I possibly could. I was so enthusiastic. So enthusiastic. In Psalm 117, the psalmist describes a similar experience, a similar feeling, a desire to share something with whoever they could. Only it's not a film that they wanted to share. It's not a trivial matter of entertainment, like much ado about nothing. No matter how great it was, no matter how cultural it was, it's, it's trivial. Psalm 117 is something more profound and life-affecting. It is the shortest psalm in the Psalter, Israel's book of praise and songs of faith. It's part of a collection called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And we read them out earlier, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Hallel means praise. So they're songs praising God. And they're Egyptian praise songs because they were associated with and sang during the Passover festival and meal. The Passover was the tenth final and terrible plague that God visited upon Egypt in order to to free his people from slavery. And Israel had cried out to God under the harsh hand of Pharaoh. They'd been there 400 years. And God had heard their cry. He called Moses, an outlaw, once of the palace, to stand before Pharaoh 
and demand that his people be let go. Pharaoh refused, time after time, even when God threatened him with plagues. Water had been turned to blood. Frogs, gnats, and flies had completely covered the land, filling buildings and beds everywhere. Not pleasant. The Egyptian cattle had been killed. An outbreak of boils had been suffered. Fiery hail had been rained down. Locusts destroyed all the crops. And pitch darkness covered the land for three days. Each time God's people were unaffected. Each time the Israelites suffered. And each time Pharaoh refused to let Israel go. Finally, God threatened one more plague, the worst, the death of every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh still didn't listen. He didn't let the people of Israel go. The Lord instructed his people to each take a perfect lamb on the 14th day of the month and kill it at twilight. They were told to put some of the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their homes and they were to then roast the lamb and eat it in haste. This is how he told them to do it. With your belts fastened, sandals on your feet, and staff in your hand. Because the Lord was going to pass through the land of Egypt that night. He promised to strike down the firstborn sons. Sorry, firstborn children in the land. Both man and beast. In order to execute judgment and show tangibly that he is the Lord. And that blood on the doors was a sign to God. When he saw it, he was going to pass over them. No plague would befall their homes. And the people of Israel did this. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who was sat on the throne, we're told, to the firstborn of the one who was sat in jail. Livestock too. There was a great cry in Egypt, Exodus records, for there was not a house where someone wasn't dead, except for among the Israelites. God had passed over them. Then Pharaoh listened. Then Pharaoh let God's people go. God rescued them from slavery and brought, about, brought them out of Egypt through the blood of lambs and these firstborn children. And he told Moses this day was to be a memorial day, kept as a feast to the Lord throughout the generations. Children were to be told of this day and reminded of God's love and faithfulness in rescuing them. It's this event, it's this context that I've just dumped on you that the Egyptian Hallel Psalms evoke. It's this memory and this theme of God remembering and delivering and listening to and answering his people that these Psalms capture and celebrate. And thus they were sung and recited during the Passover festival at the start of the year because the year was to begin with recalling God's faithfulness and his steadfast love to his people. Psalm 117 of all the Egyptian Hallel Psalms stands out. It stands out because it's so short, and that's emphasised by the fact that it's between the two longest psalms in the collection. But it also stands out due to its content. The message at first seems really clear, doesn't it? It seems standard. Three times there's a call, a bid, a request, an appeal, a mandate, or a demand for the Lord to be praised. Praise him, extol him, praise him. Pretty standard fare. Even the reasons for praising him seem orthodox or, or normal. His steadfast love is great, and his faithfulness endures forever. But there's more to this psalm than meets the eye. We need to notice, who is this psalm actually addressed to? It's the only one of the collection that isn't addressed to Israel. Who's called? Who's required to come and praise and extol the Lord? 
It isn't God's people. It isn't the people keeping the Passover feast. It's the nations. It's the peoples. Literally the word, word means tribes. The foreigners, the Gentiles. And it's broad. It's all nations, all peoples, all tribes. Everyone in the world, ever. Come and praise our God. Come praise him because of how he has dealt with us. Now that's unusual. That stands out. Notice how they are called to praise the Lord. Capital letters, Yahweh. That signifies God's personal name. It's noticeable because it occurs three times in the psalm. Just like the call to praise God occurs three times. And that means that the use of God's personal name is intended to stand out. It's intended to make an impression on us. God's personal name was a gift to Israel. It it signified that they were his special people. It signified that he was their God. It signified that they had a covenant with him, a binding agreement, an eternal promise from him that God originally gave to Abraham, that he would be their God. It signified that they were on first name terms with the creator of the universe. It signified that he had offered friendship and fellowship, the living God. His name is a promise to Israel. And here the Gentiles, the nations, all tribes, are summoned before this God, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. That stands out. Furthermore, notice what the foreign nations and the tribes are to praise him for. Let's read it again. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. See, once we've noticed the use of God's name, the evoking of his steadfast love and faithfulness becomes much more significant. It isn't normal or generic reason for reason to praise God. It actually recalls God's own description of himself as he passed by Moses in Exodus 34. Moses had asked God to see his glory. And God had acquiesced. And as he, as he passed Moses, he covered him with his hand so that he wouldn't die. And he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God revealing his, his glory to Moses. And it actually is cap- encapsulated in his character. He's faithful. He shows his steadfast love to his people. It's a moment of God showing Moses who he really is. And it deepens that sense of God's commitment to Israel. That means that the nations, foreigners, outsiders are called to praise the covenant God of Israel because of his character revealed in how he's dealt with his people. It's invitational. Come and praise our God. And that's how it's used in the New Testament. Paul quotes this in his letter to the Romans to say, hey, the Gentiles are invited to come and know this God. Come and praise our God. We know him. He's calling you to himself. And this shouldn't surprise us, actually, because when the Passover was originally instituted, there were instructions or allowances for foreigners to join and become a part of Israel, become a part of that covenant community, right back in Exodus 12. So God invites the nations not only to praise him, but also to know him, to be a part of his people. But let's look again at, at why they should do so. His steadfast love towards Israel is great. And his faithfulness is eternal. 
That is so different from every other kind of foreign god that other nations would follow. If they were just thinking about their own god, they would be expecting God to be very different from this. Psalm 2 actually tells us what they would expect of him. Let me read that to you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the nations are angry and they're enemies of God. Why? This is what they think of God. This is what they say about God. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They think that God is a tyrant. They think that he is a restrictive bully, so they set themselves against him. But they couldn't be more wrong, could they? This is the only God who loves his people. This is the only God who is faithful to his people. This is the only God who sticks by his people. This God has given his people his name. No other God does that. Foreign gods weren't interested in loving their subjects. Foreign gods weren't interested in serving their people. Foreign gods were petty and violent and bullies. Foreign gods were less interested in the welfare of their people and more interested in their own pleasures. They weren't kind, they weren't relational, and actually they weren't real. Because they couldn't do anything. But this God, Yahweh, well, look at how he's treated us. Look at what he's done. He's rescued us from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. Pharaoh, the superpower of the world, you know, the one that no one will go against. Like that, God dealt with him. This is our God. Look at him. Look at how he rescued us. This God is real. This God is like, unlike any other. This God is really worthy of praise. Because really Psalm 117 isn't just a call for the nations to praise God. It's also a call for Israel to exude and radiate, convey and display God's worthiness of praise to everyone around them. How else were the foreign nations and peoples to hear that God calls and expects them to praise him unless Israel delivered that message. And words alone just wouldn't do the job. Israel had to call other tribes to worship their God because of his worth. But they've got to see his worth. They've got to feel his worth. They've got to exude his worth. They are to be so enthused uh, They are to be so enthused as they speak of God's steadfast love and faithfulness that the natural thing is for them to just tell everyone about it. Just as I felt so enthused by that film and wanted to tell everyone how good it was, that's how they're to be with their God. And again, this isn't a surprise. It isn't random, is it? Like two weeks ago, if you were here, we read Psalm 22, where it says in verse 3 that God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. He's glorified by his people, worshipping him, Praising him, reveling in him. Praising him from the heart. That's what David talked about in Psalm 51 last week. When he begged God to remove his sense of blood guilt over his sin. So that he could again sing aloud of God's righteousness. And declare God's praise. He asked to once again feel the... To to feel once more the reality of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. He asked to be reminded of God's commitment to... To rescue them so that he could enthrone God with praises. Were the nations to see that kind of joy and enthusiasm, that kind of love for God, that kind of delight in a saviour, even a friend, 
they would know that this God had done great things for his people because his people would be so enamored and captivated by him. And that actually happened. When Solomon was king, things were great. People loved living under God. The nations came to see who this God was. I know I've given you a bit of an info dump. I'm sorry about that. In the life of Israel, the psalm was used to praise God during the Passover feast and was intended to remind the covenant community that God had been really, 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 really good to them. Really good to them. To remind them that he was their God and that he was so worthy of praise that they were to call foreign nations to lord and revel in him as well. So that's what it meant for the original readers. Okay, And of course that general principle that God is worthy of praise, so worthy of praise that we should call others to worship him is very appropriate for Christians as well, isn't it? Not least because Jesus commanded all his disciples to go out and spread the gospel to the nations so that people would turn and praise God. So here's a few implications that immediately struck me about that, this, this sort of, this overarching theme of the psalm. Number one, we are expected to call and entreat non-believers to praise our God. We don't get to choose who gets this message. It needs to go out to all peoples, all nations, regardless of creed or colour or age. We're to call them to praise our God. Whether we like them or not, whether we feel called to them or not, we have to tell them that they are invited to know him. It's not optional. It's not a lifestyle choice. We've got to go out and tell them that they have to worship our God. And we live in a multi-faith postmodern society where it's socially unacceptable to suggest that we have a handle on the truth and it's unacceptable to suggest that our faith is right over anybody else's. It's not politically correct. But what we see in Psalm 117 is that God isn't interested in being politically correct because there is only one God. There's only one door to heaven. There's only one saviour. And everybody, everywhere, from all time, is called to acknowledge him. And him alone, everyone, from every faith, must Praise Jesus. Second implication. We have to tell people that they should praise him because of how he's treated us. Okay? Because of what he's like. That's the primary reason to call people to worship God. We're not calling people to worship God because it makes sense or because it's logical or because our faith is actually compatible with science. Those are really good things, but they are not the primary reason to call people to worship our God. And they are not the things that will make people worship our God either. They may open a door, but that's not going to see people turn to him. They are good, but it's not going to see people turn to him. More important than our arguments or apologetics is God's merciful love and faithfulness towards us. More important is to tell people of God's character than to argue for the probability of God. So let's not replace the vital with the good. Third implication. I know I'm whistling through these, but that's what I want to do, so don't worry, I'm not freaking out. (laughs) Number three. um, Our calls for others to praise God should be a natural thing. Our enthusiasm for him and for all that he has done should naturally exude from us. We should ooze positivity about God. Like out of every pore. Publicly. For rescuing us. In order to do this with integrity, we should ooze positivity positivity about God privately as well. It has to be a reality felt deep down in our hearts. Because people can tell when we don't mean it. 
We can tell when we're half-hearted and when we don't really believe it ourselves. It's actually painfully obvious. It has to be more than just a collection of facts in our heads. It has to be more than a jumble of feelings. It, It has to be real. It has to be the air that we breathe. It's got to be our delight and our joy. God rescued me. Praise him. But we don't do any of this. In the psalm, the writer is confident about God's steadfast love, isn't he? He's confident about God's faithfulness. So confident that he naturally calls those nations to worship God. But that isn't our experience, is it? We are incredibly reluctant to call others to praise our God. Most of the time, we don't even feel that we need to, most of us. We don't naturally exude enthusiasm for our, for our rescue amongst each other, let alone with friends who aren't Christians. Why is that? Why am I more likely to enthuse about some stupid film than the salvation that Jesus has bought for me? Why can we publicly enthuse about our children but not the salvation that Jesus has bought for us? Why can we call our friends or our neighbours or our colleagues to read a great book or play this really good game or go and watch BBC's Sherlock or go to Sanam on the curry mile because it's ace or to switch to our energy provider because he got a really good deal? Why can we enthuse about that but not about our God? That's insane. How is it better news that I saved £20 a year from EDF than that Jesus saved me? Do Do you know what I mean? It's just ridiculous, isn't it? But that's how we operate. We can't even imagine urging our friends to praise God, can we? Can't even imagine that. There's a girl I work with, like, she's proper feisty. She reminds me of my mum, so she scares me anyway. Like, she's, like, pretty interested whenever I'm at work. Um, Like, so I work in a coffee shop, and sometimes I go there to do, like, my sermon prep or just to read my Bible and stuff like that. Um, Partly just because I don't know how else to sort of... show them that I am a Christian and um, she's always like interested she always comes and talks to me but I'm afraid to tell her that she should praise God like to say it like that hey you know this God that I worship you have to praise him that's what he says it's not alright for me and alright for you to do whatever you want like whatever you're doing is not alright that freaks me out big time why am I so afraid of that why are we so afraid of this why do we tense up at the thought Why do we become awkward and defensive when someone asks us something about our faith? Why do we avoid all of these questions? I think there are two things going on. First, we fear man more than we fear God. And second, flowing from that, we lack a sense of the greatness of God's loving kindness towards us. That's what we see in the psalm. That's what sort of births this exuberant praise. I mean, and we see that with, with Paul when he's writing the New Testament. You know, he's writing to a church that's struggling. And then all of a sudden, he's been writing about Jesus so much, he just bursts out with praise. How can I not praise him? Because of what he's done for me. So firstly, we fear man more than we fear God. We can't face calling people to worship our God. Because we care too much about what they think of us. We care too much about what their opinion of us is. We don't want to be considered weird. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to risk our friendships. Maybe that's because we've been burned in the past. We've tried something risky. You know? When I was like 19, 
and I was really passionate. I'm still really passionate. But, like, for the first time, I was really passionate. And um, I was like, I really want to share my faith with my family, but they think they're Christians. I don't know what to do. So I bought more Bibles. My mum was so offended. She thought I'd joined a cult. And she told me so. And I was like, man, I was proper bruised from that, you know? It, it made me really worried about this. I'm worried about what my mum thinks of me. It's happened with friends. I'm worried about what they think of me. Don't want to risk the friendship, so we say nothing. We do our best to blend in and make sure that our faith doesn't alienate us. We tell ourselves it's because we don't want to offend and ruin our chances of sharing the gospel. You know, we tell ourselves it's not the right time. The right time will come. It's not right now, though. Or we tell ourselves, oh, we don't know where they're at. Don't want to freak them out. But really, what we've done is exchange the joy of God's loving kindness and steadfast love for the hope of their approval. We've exchanged the joy of God's approval for the hope of their loving kindness. It doesn't matter if he loves me, because I really need them to love me right now. We want to be liked so much that we can't face saying anything. And that means in our heart of hearts, we don't believe that God is glorious. We don't believe that his opinion of us matters more than the opinion of our neighbour, or our butcher, or our landlord, or our colleague, or the parents of our children's friends, or whoever it is. We simply don't believe that God is more worthy than these people. We actually deeply believe in our hearts that their approval matters more. And I know that because it informs the decisions that we make and the way that we dress, the way that we behave, uh, the choices that we make about who to date and go out with. All because we crave their love. So we become people pleasers at the expense of being God pleasers. We become people worshippers at the expense of being a God worshipper. Is that you? I mean, I've been pretty honest with you. I'm not, I'm not slamming you down. I struggle with this. Is that you? Do you care too much about what other people think of you? Do you think deep down that their approval will complete you and satisfy your soul and make you safe? Friends, that is a lie. And we've been deceived. And here's the truth of God's word, and we must believe it if we want to be free from those lies. It's a lie. We've been deceived. And I think we're deceived. I think this all arises um, from a lack of... This is a really bad sentence, okay? From a lack of a sense of God's great loving kindness and steadfast love. Okay, we, don't, we just don't grasp that word. His steadfast love, his, his loving kindness... So that word, like, I don't know, Mike told me what it was. I think it's hesed. And it's got this really deep sense to it. Um, He told me that when the NIV um, translation committee were meeting up, it took them weeks to figure out how to translate this word because there was just so much depth to it. It's not just like steadfast love. It's steadfast love and loving kindness and commitment. It's so deep and rich. And like, you know, we clearly don't have a sense of that, do we? Because we're like, oh yes, steadfast love, that's nice. What is love? Love is like nice feelings to us from other people. Mm. (laughs) That's it, isn't it? We don't grasp it. We don't grasp it. Um, I think we crave the love of people because we haven't experienced or drunk deeply enough of God's love for us. We haven't grasped the vastness of his love or the cost of his love or the value of his love. 
And I actually feel this every time I sing a John Wesley song. He was a slave trader, okay? And when God saved him, it was really dramatic. His life completely turned around. He became um, a minister. And it turned around because he had this tangible sense of God's mercy upon him. Partly because of the awful things that he'd done to other human beings. He couldn't lie to himself that he was a good person, really. You know, he didn't live in a middle-class suburb and wear clothes from Gap. So he couldn't lie to himself. But he knew deeply that God loved him. He knew it really deeply. He knew that he was unworthy. And you can actually see that, can't you, when you sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You can actually hear it, can't you, when you say those words? How much it meant to him. They're the words of a man who had been deeply affected by God's loving kindness. But us, what are we right? Let's go and have a look at our Facebook feeds. I had baked beans for breakfast. They were, they were well good. Is that all that we've got to say? I haven't got much to praise God for today because, you know, I've got a headache. And I can't find my favourite socks. And I need those socks. You know? It's like, that's, what we've, that's what our hearts are saying, isn't it? If you look at our Facebook feeds, that's what our hearts have got to declare to the world all the time. And what is it really saying? It's saying, look at me, look at me, love me, I need you to love me, I need you to like me, I'm cool, look at me. That's what it says, isn't it? It doesn't say, oh my gosh, God's loving kindness has pierced me to the core of who I am. And you need to know him. And he demands that you know him. And he doesn't just demand that because he's worthy, he demands it because it's good for you. I was like actually having a go at some people who always put Bible verses on their Facebook page, like the other day to someone in the car. I can't remember who it was, but I think I sounded like an idiot, so I'm sorry. And I was saying to them, oh, I just wish they wouldn't put like these massively long Bible verses on their Facebook page because it just looks really weird to non-Christians. And I read this and thought about it a lot. I was like, flipping egg, they've got the right idea, actually. <laughs> okay, so maybe they're going about it in the wrong way. But they, they want to praise God, don't they? They want, they want to call people to praise him. Now, we might disagree about the best way of doing that, but actually, I should champion that. Because it doesn't matter if we look cool. It doesn't matter what people think of us. I don't think we're as deeply affected by God's steadfast love as Wesley was. I don't think we believe that we're sinners and so we don't feel the need for a saviour most of the time. So we don't delight in the gospel. We don't feel that bothered about what Jesus has done for us most of the time. And more so because we thought about our lack of seriousness, our lack of a sense of the seriousness of sin two weeks ago. More so, we lack a sense of his love for us and how precious that is. We're too busy chasing the love of people that we just don't care about his love, do we? It's as if we're the soil that's surrounded by weeds You know, the gospel seed grows, but it's surrounded by other concerns and distractions. We lose sight of his great, steadfast love and faithfulness. If we're not cut to the heart with gratitude and relief and wonder, then we will never call others to praise this God with us. And if we do, they won't listen, because they'll see right through us. We'll stay in our little bubble, and we'll live like this plethora, you know, this number of different lives depending on who we're currently spending time with. So I'll be this person with this person so that they like me, this person with this person so that they like me. Never actually be ourselves. 
I was talking to Mike Tindall about this yesterday, and he shared a story with me from the missionary biography. And I want to read a bit of that story to you. So this is a guy called David Waters. He was a missionary to a tribe in the mountains in Nepal um, that people didn't even believe existed, actually. People were sort of propagating that they were a myth, but they were real. They found them and um, took the gospel to them. And this is the story of one of the, the, the men that was converted. There was a prisoner called Old Man Dalla, who was about 75 years old. When he came out of prison in July of 1983, he went straight home transferred his houses and farmlands over to his children and began living with his old wife in a goat hair tent, herding buffalo. Every summer he lived in the wilderness above Tantung at about 10,000 feet and every winter he moved downriver to the confluence of the Sanibari below 5,000 feet where it never freezes and banana trees grow. I only have two concerns in life, he said. One is to care for my buffalo and the other is to commune with God. I need to be away from the noise and confusion of the village. The first time I saw Dalla after he was released from prison was a year and a half later, in December of 1986. The winter before, he pitched his goat-haired tent outside the low-lying Kam village of Chamaril, a small village of about 20 houses. Every evening, after tethering his buffalo, he and his wife would sit down in the flat of their tent, preparing a meal of cornmeal mush. And as they sat there, Dalla would begin to sing the gospel in his old raspy voice. Within a few days, the whole village would assemble outside his tent to listen. We want to follow Jesus too. What do we do? The villagers asked Dalla one day. Oh, I don't know anything, Dalla replied. I'm only an old man. You need to travel up to Taka and meet with the church elders there. They can instruct you more fully. So the villagers left Dalla and went, went over. They left Dalla to look after their houses. And all of them, men, women and children, all of them began to trek to Hastarama's village. On the way there, they met Christian prisoners being escorted to Muscat by police. Where are you going? They asked each other. Oh, we're off to stand before governors and kings for Jesus' sake as a testimony to them, the prisoners replied. This is insane, isn't it? (coughs) Well, we were hoping to be instructed more fully in the gospel in order to become followers of Jesus ourselves, the newcomers replied. Well, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do right now, the prisoners said. As soon as we're released, we'll come to your village to instruct you. A few months later... The whole village was baptised. Now that 75-year-old man just sang the gospel at night because it was his delight. It was his hope and joy. He had a tangible sense of God's great love for him and he just couldn't not sing. He couldn't help himself. The praise just welled up inside of him. It had to come out. He had to tell people because the gospel was so dear to him. So precious. We'll never do that if we chase the praise of men and allow ourselves to become choked by the concerns of the world around us. We'll, we'll never well up with praise like that, I promise you, if we don't feel the greatness of God's steadfast love. And that will look different for all of us. I'm not asking us all to become like crazy emotional people. But whatever that looks like for us, we've got to feel it. And don't you want that? Because I do. I want to be so enamoured with God's steadfast love that I can't not tell people to come and praise him. So I've removed Facebook from my phone because I just felt that it was obstructing me from turning to God and remembering his steadfast love. I felt like it was turning my brain to mushy peas. It just filled my brain with nonsense. If I wasn't doing anything, I would just immediately revert to going on my phone, checking his status, that kind of thing. That was a real distraction to me, just dwelling on the gospel. Where does your brain naturally go? 
What distracts you? What stops you being re- what stops the gospel being real and tangible to you? Kill it. Get rid of it. Jesus said if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's how extreme you've got to be. Kill Facebook if you have to. And this is partly why we have community groups in midweek. It's an opportunity to call each other back to this steadfast love of God. If someone in my group sees that I'm not delighting in the gospel in some way, okay, they can call me back to praise God and remind me of his steadfast love and help me to get the gospel in there, in my heart, deep. Okay? And guys, do that. Do that to me. So if you're in a community group, prioritise it. Because it's meant to be a help. It's... It's not meant to be like a burden to you. And we also want those community groups to look outwards, to call the nations to praise God. And that is easier with help. We won't do it on our own. So again, if you're in one, prioritise it. It's meant to be a help. When Jesus is really enthroned on our, on our praises, when we really believe that his steadfast love is great, we will be free from craving the approval of others. And that's, that would be such a great feeling, wouldn't it? We'll be able to imagine calling our neighbours, our family, our friends and our colleagues to come praise the Lord. We'll believe Jesus that it's okay when he said, I came to divide families. You're going to have to choose. And I'm not saying that we're going to go all out gung-ho and go mental. Most of the time we'll still be careful and loving, but we'll be able to imagine doing it. We'll be intentional, won't we? We'll be able to take that risk when it comes. It'll be possible. It won't be an anxiety point anymore because he will matter more. And the truth is, he does matter more. The psalm's part of the Egyptian Hallel collection, like we said. So the loving kindness, or steadfast love of God that it it mentions, refers to the Passover, yeah? God's rescue of his people. So for us, it's exactly the same. God's loving kindness is displayed most clearly and tangibly in an event where a precious and perfect lamb was slain. Where a firstborn son was lost, and those dipped in his blood were passed over. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he shouted, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was perfect and innocent. He delighted in his heavenly Father as no one had done before him. And he went to be baptised in order to show that he was, he was going to stand in the place of sinners. Okay, Because like, getting baptised then signified this desire to repent and be washed. Have a, have a clean heart like David was praying for in Psalm 51. But John knew that Jesus had nothing to repent for. He was reluctant to baptise him anyway because he knew who he was. He felt so unworthy. But Jesus wanted to show his intentions from the beginning. He intended to rescue a people bound by slavery to sin and death. As he came out of the water, the Father's voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus came to stand in our place. And he came at the behest of his Father, who loved him. Jesus, the beloved son, was forsaken and slain upon the cross. That's some turnaround. And it's not just a fact, okay? When the firstborn children died in Egypt, a great cry rose up because the pain of losing a child is unimaginable. Okay, and I'm a father now, so I understand that. Because when you have a child, everything, everything they do is precious to you. The way they smile, the way they laugh, the way their eyes twinkle when they're happy. The way they walk from side to side and they don't quite have balance. Even the way they pick up a spoon is beautiful and profound. The way they imitate you melts your heart. When they sing, something inside you leaps for joy. It's hard to describe the pride that you feel about your children 
just because they're your children? To lose a child is the worst feeling a parent could ever feel. And our God gave up his child and subjected himself to that pain. You know, because he loves us. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for another. It wasn't just that the Father sent him, Jesus went willingly, gave up his life, stepped into a dark and dirty world for us, for me, for you. The one who made the planets and the stars and the sun, he isn't just aware of you, he loves you. He laid down his life for you. Here's the measure of the man, okay? On the cross, people spat at him, reviled him, taunted him. Do you know what he said? Father, forgive them. Then he said the three most wonderful words that have ever been uttered. It is finished. He destroyed our sin and then gave up his spirit. But he didn't stay dead. He was raised up by his father to vindicate, to prove that his work on the cross had worked. To prove that there could now be peace between us and God. To prove that the door to heaven had been opened again to the children of Adam. Jesus suffered the agony of God's wrath in order to save us from it. Jesus, the eternal son, he died so that we might be passed over, rescued, forgiven, restored, washed, freed. Washed us in his blood. Blood that declares our punishment paid and exhausted. Blood that declares us not guilty. Blood that declares us forgiven. Blood that declares us cherished and loved. Blood that declares us free. Free from death, free from sin, free from lies, free from our own broken cycles of destruction. The blood of Jesus opens our eyes to who we, are, we really are and allows us to see clearly for the first time ever. By his spirit, Jesus shows us what we're like, right? And that we can make a choice to either sin or believe the gospel. We can either sin or cherish his great loving kindness towards us. And before he came to us and pursued us and freed us, we had no idea. We didn't know that. We were lost. We were dead. But now we're not. Before he came to us, we had no purpose. But now we know that we were made to enthrone God with our praises. That's what we're for. We were made just, to de- just for him to delight in because we're his children. Now we know that we were created to rejoice in Jesus. Now we know that we were set free to enjoy freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And that is never more clear than when we turn back and gaze upon the cross. Gaze upon Jesus. Because when we look at him, we see that he was wounded for us. Resurrected, sat at the right hand. He was wounded for us. And he still bears the scars. And there will come a day when we will see him face to face. And he's going to stand before us, okay? With open arms. And do you know what we're going to see? We're going to see his hands. We're going to see his side. And on that day, nothing will be as precious to us as his love. Nothing. The spirit who strengthened and enabled Jesus to endure the cross has been sent to us as a gift so that we're never alone. He's been sent to us to help us, to guide us, to give us this understanding to see Jesus as we read the Bible. Jesus sent him to us because he loves us. God has done all this because he loves us. The Father gave his Son because he loves us. The Son endured the cross because he loves us. The Spirit strengthened the Son to do that because he loves us. You are pursued. You are cherished. You are loved. And if that feels overwhelming, if I have just overwhelmed you, then good. Okay? Because God's 
Steadfast love here is great. It is overwhelming. If you don't know what to feel, then good. Because it needs to impact us like that. That's why the old man in the Nepalese mountains couldn't not sing. That's why he removed distractions from his life. The gospel, God's loving kindness, his steadfast love, was so tangible, palpable, and precious to him. I really want that. I don't want to be choked by the cares of the world. So remind me of his steadfast love for me. Preach the gospel to me. Help me to cherish him above all else. And I'll help you. That's what we do as a church. That's what we're here for. Praise him. Extol him. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise our King. Praise our Saviour. Praise our God. Praise our hope. Why? Because great is his steadfast love towards us. And his faithfulness endures forever. Let's pray. Great is your steadfast love, O God. Great is your faithfulness, Lord Jesus, as you hung there and as you stick by us. Great is your generosity. Great is your mercy. Great is your kindness. So deep that we just can't fathom it. It exhausts us to think about it and ravages us emotionally. We praise you. We praise you. And we beg your forgiveness. And help us, we desperately beg, to enthrone you with our praises. We pray that as a church, as a body, we would encourage each other to stay close to this gospel. And to be changed by it, to be informed by it, to be defined by Jesus. And his great loving kindness. Father, we pray this so that you would be glorified. Because we want to be the kind of people that exude the gospel and the good news. Only you can do this. Help us, we beg. Amen.